right. Well, last week we uh, continued, we started again, our series in Revelation. And uh, we are seeking in uh, the book of Revelation to see what Revelation is all about, and that is Jesus. And um, it's him uh, exalted and high and lifted up in his kingly state, his worthy state, his, uh, his high and exalted State And it's important that you and I approach Revelation in that way to help us to see Jesus and who he is and what we need to see about him and how that really affects our lives. It changes our lives. It ought to change our lives, how we see Jesus. And uh, what, what can often happen as we think about end times or prophecy or uh, the book of Revelation is that we start to look at all the little things around it and get lost inside of that. And we forget that that's not what it's about. Those things help us. I'm not saying they're not important, but it's not the main uh, attraction. It's not the most important thing of the book of Revelation. And we, we must remember that this is a prophecy, yes. It's apocalyptic uh, writing about the future and what will take place. Certainly, all that is there. But it's also a letter, a letter written to seven specific churches in a specific place at a specific time that were experiencing persecution. They're experiencing the world around them uh, out of control, uh, going this way or that affecting them in all of their lives, not much unlike what you and I face in our day, the church of Jesus Christ facing things that we've never faced before in the intensity that we've been face, been, uh, that we face those things. We live in a culture that is seemingly further and further, not just seemingly, but it is, going further and further away of what we've always known or what we've always thought or what we always think should be the case it is harder and harder to be a christian living in the world that we live the culture doesn't want that it, it, it is going against that and that's something for us to acknowledge it's not something for us to be afraid of however and so what john helps us to see is that in revelation 4 what we talked about last week and today, Revelation 5, he really helps us to put on new glasses to see something else that's taking place that, that is not in front of our eyes like everything else seems to be. Where everything that we see seems to be spiraling in, uh, and is out of control, John gives us a picture of something that is hard and fast and happening right now and fully in control. He helps us peek behind the curtain of the throne room of heaven to see that God Almighty is on his throne and nothing can overthrow him. And today we put on Revelation 5 glasses and we are able to see something spectacular and amazing that will boost our confidence and help us to understand that though the world around us seems to be crazy, that the culture doesn't want Christians to exist the way that they do. They want us to change rather than uh, us to change them. There is a constant. There is something that cannot be overthrown by that. Those, there is something that will give us strength to face a new day. There was uh, someone for us to look like, look at. There is a plan. The Almighty 
is on his throne. He's all-powerful, and what we see is that he's holding the plan of the world, particularly everything to follow in his right hand, sealed with seven seals. It, that means it's the complete plan, the perfect plan, the final plan to rectify everything to him and his glorious rule to be enacted. There is a plan. There is order behind the chaos. And this is great news, right? This is wonderful news. It's wonderful. It, it, it keeps us from focusing on the wrong thing, but now to look at the thing that matters the most. It's great news that there is order. There is order behind the chaos. There is a plan amidst the, to uh, the toil and trouble. And we need not fear. And we need not fret. You see, the book of Revelation gives us hope because God is on his throne and he is in control. I pray that this would help you no matter where you are in this room. Maybe you're a, a student, maybe high school, college, maybe even middle school, and you're concerned about the days ahead and what are those going to look like? What about a job? What about a career? What about my studies? What about that? I pray that you would help... It would help you by looking at the book of Revelation and see that Jesus is on the throne and Jesus' throne is in control. And even when things in your life seem to be out of control, you can find peace and control in him. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're married and, 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 and um, maybe things aren't going what you ex would expect. Maybe, it's, may, may, maybe you're not married and you'd like to be. Maybe you're in here and... Uh, things aren't going correct in your job or like you would want them to, or maybe there's strife or difficulty within your family. I don't know. I don't know what you face. But I guarantee you, in a room like this, in this size, we are facing something. And I pray that whatever seems to be in chaos in your own life, that you can look to Jesus who's in control, who has perfect peace for you, available to you. My prayer is that you would understand that and realize that because we are studying this book and it would give hope to you and bolster your confidence in our Savior. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation help us to see the world in a new way. It helps us to see what's happening behind the scenes. And in chapter 4, we talked about this last week. We saw the control center of the universe, the, the throne of the Almighty, and He is in perfect control. In the first seven verses of chapter 5, we see the one who is worthy to enact the plan of the Almighty, and it's quite surprising who it is. Would you, if you're able, would you stand to read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 with me? As we read the Holy Word of God, it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Perfect, complete. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. He had to be mighty because he had to uh, proclaim this throughout all creation for all, the, uh, for all things to be able to hear it and, and see it. And he says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one, listen, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. No one is worthy. 
I wept and wept bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, look. That word look, we've seen it already. We saw Jesus say, Look of what's coming. We say, Look a throne, look. And then he says, Look a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So let's just pause there for a second. Pause there for a second. A lion who conquered, victorious, a great and mighty warrior, a great mighty lion. And John begins looking, where is he, where is he? But what he saw is a stark contrast to what he imagined. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went, took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. The word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We see the one who is worthy is what we could never imagine or think of or dream of on our own. The one who is worthy is not the roaring lion coming to come in victorious. Anybody else love C.S. Lewis? Have you seen Chronicles of Narnia, read Chronicles of Narnia, but seen it as well? They did an excellent job. I mean, how could you, not, how could you fail with Liam Neeson uh, voicing the, the voice of Aslan, right? I mean, it's just powerful. But I love the picture of Aslan and his, his regal uh, entrance, right? And I love after he's been slain on the stone tablet and he comes back to the, the, the stone table, it's broken half. The beautiful picture of Christ there. So that's what, that's, you read that and you imagine, right? Aslan coming in and he's regal. He's, he's, he, he strikes fear into the ones who come. It even says he conquered. The, the elder says, look, the, la- the lion is coming. The one who conquered the one who was victorious, this regal lion. And yet, it switches around. The lion, he's still the lion. He's the lion of Judah. He's the root of David. But he represents himself as the slaughtered little lamb. The beauty of that picture helps us to see three things in this passage. The first thing is that there is order behind the chaos only the Almighty has a plan, right? So what we see in this throne room is all of a sudden the Almighty in his right hand, right hand always represents power, strength, might, sureness, solid, unshakable, unwavering, right? So the Almighty in his right hand holds this scroll. The scroll has writing on and around it. It's the plan. It's his plan. It's what he has done what he will do. He has the plan there for all to see, but no one can see it. No one can open it. We've already talked a little bit about this already, but let's look into the scene and see what John saw. The Almighty holds the scroll in his right hand, and it's secure. It's sure there. The plan is secure. Nothing can change it. It is unchangeable. Because it's in his right hand. Now, it's not, this is not a plan delivered to the Almighty by humans. It's not like people said, hey, uh, God, um, here's our 
plan of how you should do things, right? We would all love that, wouldn't we? And oftentimes we, we think we know better, right? We think we think we can approach God in that way. We've gotten sometimes too flippant with how we approach God and say, well, God, you know, I know you have a plan, but, you know, you might just want to look at mine. It could be, it could be good, right? <laughs> That's ludicrous, right? This is not a plan that human beings went and said, God, here's our plan. Here's what you should do. And we don't have the right to do that in our own lives. We don't have the right to come to the almighty God, the one who sits on the throne in all authority and power and say, say, God, well, I know you meant for it to be this way, but we submit this as an option B, right? No, that's not how it works. We aren't able to do that. Nothing can change this plan. This plan is set in stone. This plan was written before the foundation of the world. This is God's plan. Even an angel didn't write this scroll. God did. There's order behind the chaos because God did it, and God is not chaotic. God is sure, strong, powerful, and at complete peace. There's order behind the chaos because God is in control. Here lately, we, we've, we've had a refrain in our staff meetings, uh, in meetings with deacons and others, and what we've said is that as a church, and, and I sense that God is moving in our midst, I, I sense that God is moving within our church, and we've said, you know what? This cannot be our plan. This cannot be our idea. This cannot be my ministry. This cannot be your ministry. This must be God's plan. We need God to do that. And so we've arranged, rearranged how our, how, even how our staff meetings are conducted. Some used to, we would come in and was like, well, what's on the calendar? What do we need to do today? What do we need to do this week? What do we need to do in the days ahead? And then at the end of the meeting, we would say, well, God bless our plans. Bless all these plans. And I guarantee you, most churches, a lot of churches do it the same way. We're different than anybody else. I bet you do that in your own life. Hey, we're going to do this week, this this week, and that this week, and this week. And at the end of it, you say, well, God, here's all of our plans, so just bless those. But we've changed our staff meetings to where we begin and say, God, what do you want? This is your church. This is your body. This is your ministry. This is what you want. This is your, this is you. What do you want to do, God? And then we try to do whatever that is. Unless God does this, we work in vain. We don't need a human's plan. We need God's plan for our lives. The second thing that we see is that there is no person found worthy to unlock the plan. Only the Lion of Judah can. Remember, the angel says, who's worthy? And it echoes throughout all of creation, all the universe. And it says, no one was found above the earth, on the earth, or below the earth. No one was found worthy. No human being, no man, no woman, no child, no one was able to open this plan. No one was able to break the seals on this scroll. No one was able to do this. 
But then someone says, don't weep, John, because John begins to weep. I love that, that you know, we, we read it, and it's just a paragraph. It's a couple sentences, right? But if he wept and wept, there had to be time where he just kind of said, well, there's no one worthy. Kind of this moment of silence and tension to realize who is worthy? Who's going to open the scroll? Who can do this? None of us can. I can't do it. No one here can do it. But then someone pipes up and says, don't worry, don't weep. And he uses language, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. These were phrases in John's day and prior to John's day that were phrases describing the Messiah. They were messianic phrases to help them to realize that Jesus had come. They knew who it was. They knew who they were talking about, the Messiah, the one who came, the one who came and the one who died and the one who did all of these things, the one who conquered. The messianic imagery was here. I'm reminded of Romans 8, 37, as we think about that word conqueror and how that word of the Lion of Judah conquering applies to you and I. It says that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Why are we conquerors? It's not because we did anything. It's because Christ has conquered. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has reigned valiant. He's the valiant warrior. He's the valiant lion. He's the one who came and completed what he came to do. But he did not conquer in the way people wanted him to. He conquered quite differently than what everyone expected, right? This is Jesus here. He's depicted as a lion first, a conqueror, a valiant warrior. And you and I are understanding that we are not worthy because we can't conquer on our own. But we are not worthy, but Jesus is because he did conquer. It's just like when Jesus came and the Pharisees were confounded by him, the disciples wanted him to come and to be a valiant warrior and overthrow uh, not only the Pharisees, but also uh, the Roman presence in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, nope, I came to die. I came to serve, not to rule. We see that the lion conquered in a way that we couldn't imagine, that we wouldn't dream up our own, and then we get that beautiful picture, that beautiful switch around of what we would expect. And the third thing we see here is that there is power and wisdom in the most unlikely source. Only the slaughtered lamb is worthy. You see, you and I would expect... The one who is worthy is this regal lion, wouldn't we? We'd expect Aslan, right, to walk in. I mean, something like that. We, we, we see it in our own imagery and how we've painted all these things. Think about the Israelites when, uh, when they were looking for a king, and they looked for someone like Saul who was tall, dark, and handsome, broad shoulders. And who did God send? Weak little David. You see, in our minds, we expect the strongest, the mightiest, the one who has the greatest prowess to be the one that God will use. And what God says is, he says, I don't look at people like you look at people. I don't look at situations like you look at situations. I look at the heart. And what does the Bible say is that God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to who? The humble. And he uses humble things to bring about his glorious plan. And this is no different 
where we would expect a lion to come in and charge in with all glory. We see a slaughtered lamb. I, I have this picture of just stumbling in slowly. In my mind, it's not the way it happens in there because he's just at the center of the throne. But this, the, the picture strikes you. We expect a regal lion, but that lion became a slaughtered lamb. What you, what you must understand is that is how the one who is worthy, the one who conquered and earned his right to be worthy to open the scroll, to administer the plan of God, it was the fact that he conquered by being slaughtered that gave him that right. It was his humility. It was his humility. His willingness to give him himself, all of himself, so that God's plan could be fulfilled for you and me. It was his willingness to die, to be slaughtered. The word used here literally means, for lamb, literally means little lamb. Little lamb. It wasn't just a slaughtered lamb. It's that if it wasn't weak enough, but it was a, a little slaughtered lamb. And that little lamb is worthy. But do not think that that little lamb is weak. That little lamb is anything but weak. Anything but weak. Because we love to make that lamb meek and mild, right? No, no. This lamb has all power and all wisdom. How do I know that? Because it says the lamb had seven eyes, seven horns. What does seven represent? Complete perfection, right? Eyes represent wisdom. Horns represent power. This little slaughtered lamb has all completed, fulfilled power and wisdom available to him. Where no one else could walk up and take that scroll out of the hand of the Almighty, a lamb a little slaughtered lamb who go take it and open it and administer it. See, Jesus is powerful and wise, and we see him at this. When John looks for him, he's at the center of the throne. Why? Because he is God. This meek lamb, worthy because he was slain is at the very heart of the Almighty God. And he has the power and the wisdom to unlock and release God's plan. Friends, if we don't dig down and understand some of this imagery, it's very easy for us to be confused or misrepresent what's here. But what I want you to see that's here, that's clearly here, is Jesus' willingness to be slaughtered. Why do, I say, why do I use that? It's because the text uses it, and it's a very vivid way to say it. He was willing to be slaughtered for you. The love that he had for you is the very thing at the center of the heart of God. God 
gave himself for you, for your sin, so that you wouldn't have to be punished for it and he would be punished for you. We're going to stop there because next week we're going to look at what the people decree. But we see why in this. They'll say, worthy is the Lamb. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who bought our redemption, who bought bought all the things that we needed. Jason's going to preach on that next week. So I don't want to give too much away. But that's why. Because at the very heart of God was his love and his sacrifice so that people could have a right relationship with him and so that they could, like John, hear and fulfill and see the fulfilled plan of God, that God's plan would be enacted and that they would be rescued and redeemed for all of eternity because of it. So what I pray today for you and we will have in just a moment a vivid representation of what the lamb went through to be slaughtered for you and I what I pray for you today this is this is the the thing that we must respond to we not just someone who may not know the lord as savior but all of us must respond to the slaughtered lamb for you and I my prayer is that you and I would walk out of here understanding Jesus' love and that we would receive it daily in our lives. Maybe you are here today and never trusted Christ at the heart of God is his sacrifice so you could know him, so you could follow him, so you could believe in him. Don't walk out of here today without trusting that. Don't walk out of here today without following that. If that's you, But all of us need to live in that love that Christ gave every day. So let's let's pray for just a moment, a moment, um, thanking Him for that, and then we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper, to communion, so that we can literally, as Scripture tells us, to commune with the body broken, with the blood spilled of Jesus. So we can remind ourselves of what he went through for us. Let's pray. You stay seated. Our deacons are going to come after the prayer. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper, reminding ourselves of the slaughtered lamb who stands at the center of the heart of God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you. You didn't merely come as the Lion of Judah to come and to overthrow and to, and, to, and to conquer us. But you conquered sin for us by becoming a meek, humble, slaughtered lamb. So that we could know you and be loved by you and love you in return. Thank you, Jesus. Help us now as we take of the Lord's Supper, as we remind ourselves and commune with your death, with your body broken, with your blood spilled, may we recall that lamb in a sacrificial love for us. 
And may we worship you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.